this is the fear of science. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to The Fear of Science, the podcast that dives into the wide world of science and science-adjacent topics to demystify, debunk, and delight. Each show features a new fear, along with special guest surprises and discoveries along the way. My name is Daniel Chai. And I'm Jeff Porter. And Jeff, I'm really excited for this episode. I think that this conversation is going to make a deep impact. Oh, I think it'll be out of this world for sure. Uh, do you not want to miss a thing? <laughs> I I think those are those are the only ones that we were able to think up before the, this recording, which is okay because we are joined by a very special guest who is much smarter than us. And we're very excited to uh, welcome them very shortly. Our special guest today grew up watching Star Trek and came to believe that, like the crew of the Enterprise, life should be about exploring with the family and doing good where you can in the universe. Becoming an astronaut didn't work out, so he studied international development at the University of Toronto, but always kept one eye on the sky. After feeling like his passion for space was a guilty pleasure when compared to the challenges on our planet, he remembered later in life that the whole reason he wanted to explore and do good was originally inspired by a love of the stars. Jeff, I love our special guest already. I'm only halfway through the bio. (laughs) Our special guest merges passions for social justice, astronomy, and science fiction as a public speaker. He has spoken to thousands of youth across Canada on topics of social justice and astronomy, and is a TEDx presenter. He is co-founder and CEO of Esther's Echo, a charity that supports a local school for vulnerable girls and women in West Africa. And he currently lives here in beautiful Vancouver, BC, and works at the H.R. McMillan Space, Pla- Space Center Planetarium, as well as the Trottier Observatory. I'm very excited to say hello to Matthew Simone. Hello. Well, I don't want to close my eyes. I had that. I just had that in my head ever since you started doing the intro. Oh man! Uh, uh, but yes, uh, space. Now, uh, Matthew, glad to have you here for this. Now, Jeff, uh, this topic. Why this topic for the fear of science? Well, we did um, fear of aliens. I think it was. I want to say episode two or three. It was way early on. And I remember in that episode thinking, saying, we need to do one just on space. Uh, And then we didn't. And now it is 60 odd episodes later. And we're finally getting around to it. So I'm sure we will be talking about aliens as well, because you can't talk about space without aliens. I'd be disappointed Uh, if we didn't at least touch on the topic. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, but I felt like this was a topic that we needed to talk about again. Nice. Oh, Excellent. I'm glad you revisited it. And thanks for having me on. I do appreciate it. Now, uh, you know, I, I'm very glad to, uh, uh, you know, be here with the both of you because uh, both of you are, are science educators. Um, you, you uh, Jeff, you work at uh, Science World and Matthew, you work at the Planetarium, Planetarium and at the Observatory. Um, you, you know, 
normally we start off with uh, with a very important question, and I feel like we shouldn't break that streak. So, Jeff, <laughs> please ask your question first, and then I do have a follow-up oh, yes. question, though. So the question we always start with, uh, and, and this one's a little bit different. Um, I'm going to ask more, uh, why are people afraid of space, but also are people afraid of space? Yeah, I think... Um, Definitely. And there's different reasons why. And trying to poke at that a little bit is one of the uh, interesting things of having people come to places like the Trotje Observatory or the planetarium is that you've, you've finished talking to them about space and you're so excited about it. And then you realize that you have made them terrified and you've done it with glee, <laughs> right? Because you're so excited about what you're talking about. And then the person is staring at you wide eyed and they say, wow, space is like really, really big. And I don't know if it's always so much the physical danger. I mean, that's an element of it. But I think it's also that it, it tends to sometimes throw people into a bit of an existential crisis. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah because when you're talking physical danger, most of us really don't have to worry about physically being harmed by space. Uh, I, for one, I don't think I'll ever be an astronaut. But so I'm not too afraid of space hurting me. Yeah, and actually, you know, we will talk about that at the planetarium or at, or at the observatory, especially with young people. Uh, and we'll talk to them and we'll say, hey, you know, many of them are at the age where once they graduate and they've grown up, they're going to be around the age that we're planning on going to Mars. And so you'll ask them and say, would you want to go to space? And actually, a lot of them say no, because they, they are scared of going into space. But they we do also encourage them to think about the fact that most of the jobs around space exploration are going to be on Earth. They are going to be working on the ground and either sending robots or or humans into space, but from the ground. And so we need engineers in the background and psychologists and doctors and everyone who's doing the work, the groundwork. And so it's good for us to, to tell them that, too. It's not always just you have to be the astronaut or you're going to be the astronaut because some of them are, are terrified of space. And rightly so, because space will kill you in every possible way you could think of. What? And it's. Yeah. And it's, it's, I was thinking about this on the way home today. I was like, I, you know, and it's not, it's not just the physical danger, but I think, you know, when you, when you get killed on earth, like if something gets you and damages your body enough that you, you cease to function, it's like an invasion to your body. It has damaged your body's life support, but to go into space is the opposite. You are the one invading space. Space is entirely mm. incompatible with your physiology in every imaginable way. And so it's just, you don't belong out there. That's kind of what That's it's saying. That's a good point. And yeah, I, I think all of science is trying to keep us on earth. Yes. And so I think in some ways that might partly overlap with the existential crisis of it is that 99.99999% of the whole universe, we can't exist in. It's not made for us, you know, and wow. we, we, we only can exist here. So that, that leads into my, my follow up question then, you know, uh, you know, we are made for, for, uh, uh, living here on earth, you know, science a la gravity holds us down, you know, mm -hmm. keeps us here. So, you, you know, and I, and I asked this, uh, with an, with an open mind and an, and a, a bit of perhaps of devil's advocate. So, uh, you know, if going into space, so is so dangerous my question is uh so why why is it important to be studying the space uh why is it important to be studying you know uh, our solar system why is it important to be uh sending rovers to mars and and all of these things why, why do people go to science world and to the planetary 
to the observatory when uh, it can be dangerous. Yeah, I think it, it gives us perspective. Uh, one of the most reproduced images, uh, in, at least in print it was, I don't know about digital now, if it still holds this record, but is, is Earthrise. So it's looking back on planet Earth when we went to the moon. And that was one of the most incredible things is that we had never seen the moon from that far away before. And it kind of gave us this old new self-consciousness. And we've had other similar photos. Probably the other that, that is similar that is equally as famous is the, the pale blue dot image that was taken by Voyager 1 spacecraft. It was the last picture that Voyager 1 took before it shut down its cameras to conserve power, before it, it continued out of the solar system. Uh, that one was taken in February 14th of, of 1990. And uh, that was that was a project by Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan wanted that photo taken of Earth. And he has like a whole book that's then based on and inspired by that picture that's called Pale Blue Dot. And so as we as we explore, and I think this is true of any exploration we do, whether it's out into the cosmos or out into the world or, or just even just down the street, when we explore the universe around us, I think ultimately we're also exploring ourselves. And I think that there is nothing more human than to engage in that, that, that sense of wonder about the universe around us. I think in some ways, exploration is a form of empathy. You know, when you, when you explore, you're empathizing with the universe, you're empathizing with the life in that universe, whether off the world or on the world, and you're empathizing with yourself. So I, I think we have to do it in order to maintain the core element of what makes us human. And now that we've, we've explored our world, not that we've explored it entirely. I mean, there's still parts of our planet we've never seen before depths of the ocean under the ground. But the other place is the stars. And if there's one thing that's always been above us the whole time that we've been walking upright on this planet, it has been the stars. It seems like a natural extension of our, of that part of our humanity to go up and want to see what's out there. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Um, although just to play devil's advocate, mm -hmm. I think it would be a lot easier if we just got some big signs, put them up in the sky with a big skull and crossbone, just like space, bad, die, don't go. <laughs> I, I, yeah. Um, and, uh, that's why we're doing so much robotic exploration as well. Right. So it's so much easier for us to send robots into space than it is people. What's cool about that though, is I think that they, they still carry an element of our humanity. I mean, look yeah. how excited people were over the Perseverance landing. And the fact that we have video from that now. We have video from Perseverance. I remember when we landed the Sojourner, the Mars Pathfinder mission, and now it's blank, either 96 or 97. Uh, but the internet was new. And yeah. when that first picture from Mars came back, I'm on like a dial-up connection. You know, and you're watching the line by line that picture came in. <laughs> and my understanding is, I think at the time, a lot of the internet, world internet traffic was routed through servers in France. And we use the term break the internet now sort of sarcastically, but people trying to download those images for that were coming in from NASA. The first time that we NASA ever posted mission photos online, it actually broke global internet traffic. And yeah. there was the French government was actually asking people to stay off the internet and stay off phone lines and telecommunication because it had saturated the world's internet connection. So part of us goes with even these robots and we, we care about them. We want to know what they're up to and that they're okay. And all 10 of those people were pissed off that they couldn't. <laughs> and I, and I was one of them. <laughs> now, um, robots are great until the, the uprising, then we're all screwed. So, you know, especially that we abandoned them up there. Why did you forget <laughs> about me? I love the videos of the, the Mars Rover, with sad music of it just going because it was just left there, body still there somewhere. 
Yeah, and and some of them are probably buried by now. Let's see, the Sojourner probably is, but you know, some of them we might maybe we'll recover them in the future. Who, yeah. who knows? Yeah. Now, uh, Matthew, I, I'd like to get to know a little bit more about about your journey. Uh, I'm very glad that I got a chance to uh, uh, learn a little bit about it as we were doing research about uh, you know about you and your and your bio. But uh, I was mm-hmm. can you take us back? Uh, what was you know so it. Uh, what I love about it is that I think so, uh, so relatively few of us get to, you know, um, explore and, and kind of like, uh, keep our passions for what interests us as a child into what they get to do as an adult. Uh, mm-hmm. so did, you know, uh, you grew up watching Star Trek. Do you remember the first time, uh, that you were like, wow, I, space is my thing. Like for myself, pro wrestling is my thing, but for you, <laughs> space. Uh, do you remember what what was that moment, that catalyst that you're like, ah, yes, I found it. Yeah, so I have a I have a distinct memory from childhood uh, with my grandfather uh, at his cottage. It was uh, at a lake called Chibandwan in northwestern Ontario, and uh, we spent summers at that cottage that he built himself. And the sky out there was incredibly clear, just outside the lights of the city, and you could see everything. And he had this tiny little 60 millimeter telescope, and it was the first thing I saw the rings of Saturn through and the stripes of Jupiter. But there was one moment in particular, and I'm pretty sure it's the earliest memory I have of feeling a sense of wonder. Mm-hmm. And it, it has stuck with me my whole life. We were, we were, it was a clear night, and he pointed above the cottage to a fuzzy point in the sky. And I don't know if I could actually see it or not, but I might have just been more taken by his description of it. But that fuzzy patch in the sky, as he explained, was not a cloud. It was actually the Andromeda galaxy, which is the largest object that a human being can see with the unaided eye. It typically has to be in pretty clear skies. And he explained to me, he said, that's the light of billions and billions of stars. And then I remember him emphasizing, he would say, billions with a B. And then he would say, hmm, <laughs> make sure that you were paying attention. Uh-huh. And I just thought it was incredible that I could be seeing billions of stars in one tiny part of the sky. And I and I think almost everything I've done is sort of defined by a moment like that of, of feeling this wonder and almost kind of trying to chase that feeling of wanting to be a part or connected to something bigger and larger and just so, so awe-inspiring. So that was that was kind of the setting. And of course, watching Star Trek and and I was just grew up wanting to become an astronaut. My my hero back then, as I got older and wanting to learn what an astronaut was actually like, was of course Chris Hadfield, because he was our mm-hmm. Canadian astronaut superstar and continues to be. Are there any are there any space themed pro wrestlers? That must be a thing, right? The pro there's, wrestlers there's, themed over everything. Uh, yes. There's two that come to mind. Nice. Uh, in the early nineties, there was Max Moon. <laughs> Um, and, uh, uh, and then more recently, probably within the last, oh, five years or so, uh, there was a pro wrestler called Stardust. Stardust. Nice. Oh. Uh, shout out to Cody Rhodes, now part of AEW. Uh, make sure to catch, uh, Cody and Brandy Rhodes in their upcoming reality show, uh, Rhodes to the Top, only on TNT. Nice. Are you making that up or is that real? The best part, you can't tell. I know. Uh, I could. I was like, "Is this ad lib?" Because that's astonishing. Nobody knows. <laughs> uh, but you know, for for me, I, I and myself, and I would love to hear about yourself too, Jeff. Uh, 
I remember uh, my my next door neighbor. Uh, you know, sometimes I would go over there for like you know to be babysat that kind of stuff. And my next door neighbor had like uh, books all about like the galaxy. You know, and you would open it up, and there would be like these you know giant blown up photos of like uh, of Jupiter and the and the you know the the store the the storm eye of Jupiter, and then like zoom in on like what an asteroid is and. Uh, zooming in on, you know, uh, like oh, or a zoom out and being like, wow, look at look at our solar system, you know, the Milky Way. Uh, I remember being very fascinated by books like that because, again, very similarly, you know, it provided a young child me uh, a bit, you know, and this was someone who, like, never left my home city <laughs> very often. So it's like, man, I can't, I. I haven't even been to North Vancouver. Wait, there's a West <laughs> Vancouver too? Uh, so to to realize that again, like, wow, there are all these planets. And, and oh, wait, these planets are super far away from Earth. And then, oh, then there's these other galaxies in this universe. Wait, there are galaxies in the universe? Well, that's just crazy. Uh, so... Yeah, uh, for for me, I reading about space uh, piqued my interest, and uh, I still and of course grew up with original Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what what were you saying? Yeah, Jeff? for me, I I think um, I was never really super into space. I wasn't one of those those uh, space kids at all. Um, I liked the idea of it, but for me, it was it was sci fi. Like sci fi mm-hmm. is what what got me. I loved. TNG, um, you know, Battlestar Galactica, like all that was just my jam. Um, so I loved space, but I also didn't know any accurate information about space as well. Because it was all <laughs> based around sci-fi. Wait, there are no Betazoids? Uh, there might be. Now, uh, so, you know, whether it's with Star Wars, Star Trek, you know, Battlestar Galactica, uh, you know, we humans, we've always had such a fascination of space. And so mm-hmm. we create these sci-fi shows, we write these books. Um, you know, again, uh, Matthew, do you think that this all ties back into, like, what what are, what are humans, you know, uh, from pop culture, you know, what, why do we love these shows why do we read these books is it because we want you know to to regain that sense of wonder that we get as a child or you know or or the perspective that you were mentioning about earlier or is it something else yeah you know that's one of the things i've been i've been working on a film for like way too long now uh it's been the same documentary for a while but it uh called chasing atlantis it started originally as a a film that was going to talk about the retirement of the space shuttle and kind of like transition to new space and private space. But it it started to become more about, it was how people use space as a backdrop to talk about belonging and our Mm -hmm. place in the wider universe. And like it, it happened, it happened pretty suddenly with, there was a couple of interviews that we did where we were asking kind of people the generic questions about why they found space interesting or what it was alluring to them. And all of a sudden, like a few people answered the question differently. And we realized that we were on a completely different journey. This wasn't about 
it, yeah, it was about the shuttle and watching the launch, but it was as much about the people watching that shuttle or, and the, on the shore and us and, and what, and what we were projecting of ourselves kind of out into the universe. I, I think ultimately like we, we all want to know as individuals, you know, are we alone? How do we connect to others? How do we relate to others? Where do we find our belonging? If you take that question and scale it up to the size of a planet, well, that's the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. That's SETI. That's mm-hmm. us asking if we're alone in the universe. It's it's like the same manifestation as, of us as individuals in our own walk of life, but as a whole civilization. So um, a shout out to two people in, in particular. One, we had um, one of the interviews we did early on was with Will Wheaton. And uh, we we asked him, we said, you know, are, where... Uh, why, like, why do you think space is so alluring or what do you find uh, so alluring about space? And I, I'm kind of paraphrasing his answer a little bit, but he, uh, one of the things I loved about uh, Will is like, he would stop and like really gives thought to like answers mm-hmm. in an interview. And then he said, uh, space is, space is where you want to go when you feel like you don't fit in on earth, like, especially mm-hmm. as a kid. And I was like, I don't, <laughs> like, I don't know what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> just like, you know, um, too real, too real. Too real. Um, so that was one. Um, another is um, a friend of mine who we we met early in the interviews or interviews as well, who kind of also steered the direction of our project. Uh, her name is Anne LeMay, and uh, so she's a video game narrative design writer who's worked for several companies, including uh, Ubisoft, Warner Brothers, and uh, and uh, and BioWare. And and she said that uh, you know that she primarily enjoyed writing. She was a huge Star Trek fan as well. And it primarily enjoyed writing uh, science fiction and, and for science fiction based games because of that theme of connection and belonging that comes up so much, trying to find uh, commonality between differences across like alien races and species, because it's that's the thing that we struggle with the most. So I, I think in a way, I wonder if almost and maybe Jeff, you can comment on this as well, because you were so much into science fiction. That answer of whether or not space was like this tragically lonely, awful, horrible thing that wants to kill you versus something that potentially could be filled with possibility and connection and and exploration might have been filled in for me in some way through science fiction, but also because space was introduced for me by the family member that I was closest to, which was my Mm. grandfather. And so for me, what I recognized after doing these interviews and talking to people like Anne and Will was that for me, space was synonymous with family. So it was always about connection. And I, you know what, I think whether or not you're passionate about space or whatever it is, ultimately, I think a lot of people, they're passionate about something because it makes them feel connected to other people and it makes them feel connected to the universe around them. And so, um, and maybe that's why I wasn't always so afraid of space. Otherwise I might've been. There was one time I was really afraid of space, but we'll get to that. We can get to that later. Matthew, that is so well said. Uh, Thank you. Something that we uh, uh, are all striving for. and Very well said. Thank you. That that was actually one of the questions that I had as well, um, is the fear of space, the fear of the unknown. But I never really thought about the opposite of that, that is the love of space, the love of kind of imagination in a way, the love of not knowing and wanting to know what exists outside of our world. Because that's where, like, that's where sci-fi was for me to like live in a Star Trek world, be exploring space, finding other civilizations. And like, I didn't have a good time growing up. Uh, I was bullied a lot as a kid. And in a way it was me wanting to find something better than what I was currently living. Yeah. Why, why I, I can relate to that because I pretty much 
once I got home from school, I just wanted to stay in my room and watch Star Trek episodes, right? Because yeah, like, yeah. because there you were, that was a world where you'd be accepted no matter who you were, right? That was the great thing about Star Trek. And so I, I think in those, in that sense, you can take those elements, those, those, those aspects of us, and they get projected into this canvas of space. Mm-hmm. So I think where, where if, if you don't have that as a primer, maybe space is very terrifying. And I, and I was trying to think of, of, of probably one of the best ways to, to analyze that is through uh, referring back to the Pale Blue Dot, the book that was written by Carl Sagan and Andrewian uh, in 1997. So the chapter in it, chapter three, it's called uh, The Great Demotions. And they talk about how through, especially astronomy, but cosmology is how Every time we learned more about the universe, it kind of demoted humanity's place in that universe. Mm-hmm. So like, and this, and that I think is the same thing on a micro scale that's happening sometimes to people when, when we're doing science communication and talking to them for the first time about just the, the enormity of the universe, they're going through one of those demotions. And we, I think it's actually, I, I think about this more, I think it's actually critical for us as science communicators to acknowledge that that is happening. And because when we don't, I think it creates a barrier that results in not only people's resistance to astronomy and the size of space, but I think science in general. And so yeah. we, we need to be able to replace that in some way. For me, it's always there because I, I had Star Trek. I had, you know, these positive views of space. But for other people, it's, you know, and, and this has gone through history. So we learned we were not at the center of the solar system. We learned we're not at the center of the galaxy. We learned our galaxy is not the only galaxy. And, you know, Andrian and, and Carl Sagan are going on about this. And that ultimately that the universe is not really for us. They call it self-congratulatory chauvinisms, quote unquote, that yeah, are, yeah. Are, are dismissed by this. So if if you don't have somewhere else to fill that narrative in, you can be left with, I am completely insignificant in yeah. light of, I'm just like a speck of dust in the midst of all of that. And so I, I think we need to also focus on, no, 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 that's, that's not it. The other side to this is that you're the product of like four and a half billion years of evolution. You, you are literally animated this, star ash. This? Right? And, <laughs> yeah, all of us, <laughs> right? Wow. And, the, uh, and that, that is also cool. And so it's like, and it's, a, it's, a stor- it's extraordinary that we are here on this planet at all. So it's, it's making sure that we're, we're, if a person's narrative in terms of their own place in space has been like destroyed, we have to also make sure that it's not substituted, but that we're also highlighting the majesty of what it really is to still be alive on earth, even though it's one of trillions of planets just in our own galaxy. Wow. It's kind of like um, a super patriotic American realizing that there's other countries besides America. (laughs) I, We love all of our American listeners. <laughs> it's like, um, why are these unsubscriptions? What happened? Yeah. Um, yeah. What I love about this conversation is that uh, it's it's uh, mildly morphing from fear of space to introspection about the human condition. Is this, is this what it all is? <laughs> well, I, if there's one thing to, to, to highlight the nature of the human condition, it's to look at us as a speck on the pale blue dot picture like you know and that's that's what car that's what sagan goes into as a reflection you know when on because of that photo it's you you know that how how many billion years of of evolution well we think i probably i probably stretched that a bit because we think life life probably started on earth at least three and a half 
billion years ago. I think that's right. It's probably close to there somewhere. Pretty much as soon as the conditions for life were possible on Earth, life started. That's one of the indications to us that life might be more common, hopefully, than we think it is. So, um, you know, and that's why we're looking for it in unlikely places like, you know, the dry basin on Mars or maybe even recently we thought for a while it might be living in the atmosphere of Venus. So that that leads into a great question as well. Um, aliens. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to ask everybody, uh, do you believe in aliens? Mm, I mean, uh, I, I believe that Will Smith is the first, last, and best line of defense. Uh, that's, that's what I believe in. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I'll quickly jump in, in first. Uh, I believe in aliens very, um, similarly perhaps to, to what, you know, the, uh, you were mentioning Matthew earlier, but I believe in aliens only in so much the fact that I really don't think that humans are that special. Now, <laughs> in terms of the fact that, you know, uh, man, and I'm not a, I'm not a scientist. I'm not, you know, uh, uh, you know, a, a space super, you know, smart about space things. See, even that last sentence I believe. very smart. <laughs> what? A meteorologist? um but you know uh uh, because i if my memory serves me correct i read somewhere that you know uh we er, life needs to uh be created in a specific sort of of like perfect conditions like it can't be too close to the sun it can't be you know it can't rotate too slowly um you know it it needs to have at least three moons you know, uh, like Tatooine. Um, I also like some kind I of Goldilocks. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah. The other two we had, they took off. They're like, we're out of here. So, but but yeah, I I really you know uh, genuinely feel that uh, we aren't that special. So there must be life somewhere else in this entire universe. There just must be. Yeah, I'm 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 very similar mindset as you um i think that there must be aliens out in the universe it's just way too big whether they've come to earth i am less to believe that um i think it would be cool but i also think that they would probably let people know a lot more rather than just randomly abducting people um although i do have (laughs) on my jacket i have a a um, X-Files patch um, from the I Want to Believe uh, poster. And the amount of people that stop me on the street to tell me about their alien abduction. <laughs> oh, you can tell I live on commercial drive. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> yeah, I tell you, with all the... Uh... With all the conspiracy nonsense out these days, I felt like I couldn't I couldn't wear my X-Files gear anymore because it's just gotten too weird. So yeah, I I've thought it, about taking the patch off, actually. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to yeah. be a bit much. I just, yeah, I mean, I think statistically speaking, it's probably unlikely that we're the only, you know, intelligent life forms in the entire universe. The, the thing is whether or not we coexist at the same time with each other. This is actually a, a, a major part of the SETI initiative. So um, one of the other 
incredible interviewees I, I had the pleasure of meeting and speaking with was Jill Tarter, who is basically the cornerstone of, of what has become now the modern search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Um, in fact, if you if you watch the movie Contact, the character Ellie Airway, who is played by Jodie Foster, was inspired by Jill Tarter in real life because oh, her and love that Car- movie. Yeah, her and Carl Sagan knew each other. Anyways, when you ask her why she like what you know, why is it important for her to get an answer as to whether or not there's intelligent life in the universe, uh, she says it's an indication that if you have two technological civilizations coexisting that they can actually receive or send signals to one another it shows that it's possible for technological civilizations to be long-lived that that Mm. we could survive so for her it's about finding hope but the fact that you could have an advanced civilization that might be able to travel thousands of light years trillions and trillions of kilometers but then they can't park properly and they crash (laughs) at roswell that seems unlikely i don't think that that's that's the case um, but that is a that, so that is a great point. I mean, because well, what is it like um, the Earth, the you know um, the amount of time that life has been here on Earth is is like uh, is like a, a footnote in the history in the in the entire universe lifespan. Is that what it, you know it, it is? Well, as far as we know, right now, the universe is is close to 14 billion years old. So if life has been on Earth for over 3 billion years, that's a pretty significant fraction, I think. But we have only been around for a tiny, tiny part of that time. Um, What I think is exciting, though, is that, you know, humans have been walking upright on or humans themselves have been on Earth uh, as a species, probably somewhere between 150,000 to 250,000 years What's exciting is during that whole time, we might be living in the time of humanity where we actually get an answer as to whether or not there's life anywhere else in the universe. So that's, that is kind of, that is pretty cool to think that we're the humans growing up where we might get an answer as to whether or not there were ever microbes that lived on Mars, or maybe we'll be around when we find out there's something living under the ice on Europa. Like that's, that's pretty, that's, that's amazing. Now the question is, will we survive long enough in order to get those answers? That's a civilization. Yeah, what well, we could have, maybe we'll have answers from Perseverance within the next decade. You know, we're, we're hoping to have Mars a sample return mission from Martian soil that Perseverance is packing up right now to hopefully back on Earth in the early 2030s. So that soil will be in the hands of scientists, hopefully, and maybe we'll find something in it. So we, we might have some of that, that evidence very soon. But like, our, if if we were to bring soil samples back from Mars and... I was to like, you know, cut myself opening the package and like, would there be, could there be like anything in this, in the like space soil that could like infect me and hurt me? Well, yeah, this is, I mean, that's like the beginning of when we, when we say this to people, even when they're, they're visiting either the center or the, you know, when we're doing virtual streams at the planet at the observatory, when you start saying, oh, we're going to bring soil samples back from Mars and open them on Earth, everyone's like, wait a second. I've seen this movie before, <laughs> right? Um, but remember, we did the same things with the moon as well. So, in fact, when the astronauts came back from the moon, uh, especially Apollo 11, and I think that might have been, I might be wrong, but I think that was the only mission that this was done. But they were put in quarantine for two weeks after returning in the in the off chance that they might have picked up anything on the moon. And uh, so watching for fever, infection, that kind of thing. Same with the samples that came back from the moon. So they're, they're kept in quarantine uh, before being opened. And that will definitely be doing the same thing with the Mars soil. So they'd be open in a sterile environment and uh, probably away from people or people wearing suits and protective gear, because that is something you do need to worry about. Not only that, 
But the opposite is true. We also want to make sure that we're not contaminating the soil samples and finding ourselves, right? right? Because you don't want to do a self-discovery, which so far, every time we've detected, or I'm going to say in quotation marks, detected life in the universe, it has been us just detecting ourselves. It ends up being a signal bouncing off one of our own satellites or whatever. One of the most notorious ones where uh, we were getting regular signals around the same time of day in one of our radio antenna, and it turned out to be like one of the staff opening a microwave oven at the same time every day. It was just them cooking lunch. (laughs) And instead of waiting for the timer to go off, they were hitting the button to open the door, which turns the microwave off, but there's a little bit of leakage. And if your dish is super sensitive and you're looking for something out in space, well, that flash from a microwave looks like a pretty strong signal, but that's what we found out it was. So this happened. So we want to make sure we're not just doing a self-discovery as well. Well, and we have to watch out, like uh, Spider-Man has taught me, we need to watch out for any black ooze as well (laughs) yes symbionts yeah (laughs) and it's always something goopy and oozy right it's in aliens that movie life and in the um uh and in spider-man they're all goopy it's all some goopy black thing that gets you so just watch out for that even life was a great movie even worse if that black goop gets on you Ah, you're not going to be part of the Marvel, uh, the the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Oh no, yeah, you end up being owned by Sony for a while. Other one. <laughs> no, we that's the worst. <laughs> yeah, they're like, sorry, um, you got to go to the Sony room. You're you're now in quarantine. <laughs> Speaking of movies, actually, uh, one question I was going to ask is, what would be considered the least accurate space movie? least accurate of movies that are meant to be accurate (laughs) (laughs) not just any sci-fi i think a lot of science consultants for science fiction shows will tell you that at some point i mean if you're trying to have a science accurate science fiction show especially if it's set in space there are certain pylons that you have that the story will navigate around but at some point the science has to serve the story so there might always be some liberties taken with it i honestly you know what and i i don't have a problem with that i think it's okay it's one of the same sentiments i have when we when we're doing outreach to schools when there's so much emphasis placed on curriculum like hitting those those check boxes that like okay this grade we have to learn about the moon or orbital mechanics or whatever I'm, i'm not as worried about that i'm more interested in the fact that when someone gets out of an experience they just have more curiosity and want to go learn more about this thing and and also from valid sources, like from scientists and and from, you know, from uh, accredited books and not just on YouTube or whatever, but like they're they're actually interested in learning more about it. So I think if some movies take liberties with some of their science, but, you know, tell a good story or are still engaging people uh, in, in trying to understand more about science, then that's OK. I don't I don't mind that so much. But I would say if people want to see a, a pretty like generally thought to be scientifically accurate film, uh, it'd be The Martian. Mm, yeah i love that movie even then (laughs) yeah right so most of how how he's trying to live on the surface is is pretty accurate science and and you can go through like there's an index where it kind of goes through and it talks about that all the way through but um there's uh is it mark weir i think mark weir the author even he says there is some liberties taken and in fact the inciting force uh that starts the whole thing the windstorm on mars that would never happen Mars atmosphere right. is never it was no way thick enough to have a windstorm that creates that much force that it would actually knock over the spacecraft. It just wouldn't happen. But it's it's something to get the story started. And so he yeah. took he you took need the narrative. Yeah. 
Yeah. Now, uh, uh, speaking of, uh, you know, uh, uh, movies and movies that I'm excited to one day see, uh, I wanted to uh, ask you a little bit about, uh, you mentioned this earlier, about Chasing Atlantis. Yeah, the film started as a road trip to go see the last launch of the space shuttle. Uh, you were talking earlier a little bit about maintaining connections with childhood passions, but later on in life. And uh, at some point, I kind of realized a lot of my life was defined by not being a thing. And that was not being an astronaut. Mm. You know, and, and and it never worked out for a number of reasons. One, uh, my eyesight is not that great. And at the time, my understanding was that if you were a Canadian, the way to get into the space program was to be an Air Force pilot. And that's that's the route that Chris Hadfield had taken. I believe that now there are there are other wider opportunities. And that's one of the cool things about how the astronaut program has evolved is that there are now way more people from a wider variety of backgrounds, fields of study, uh, science that are, are being brought into space, which is awesome. That's that's what we need. It's not just pilots anymore, you know, especially like the Apollo mission. It was all pilots. There's only one scientist that went to the moon. Um, really? Yeah, one geologist. All the rest of them were pilots, trained pilots to do science, but ultimately uh, pilots. So um, I kind of missed out on that, and and later on in life, I had realized that this was this was a big part of me that I had lost connection with, and so I wanted to go and see that last launch of the space shuttle. And so we we drove down with my friend Paul Muzzin. He uh, runs a studio called Riptide, and and uh, we went to high school together. And he graduated and went on to study film at Sheridan College. And I told him, like, I'm thinking of maybe just bringing a camera. And he's like, no, 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 let's do this right. And like, I'll, I'll get, let's get proper equipment and we'll go film this road trip journey and, and we'll, we'll head down and see the last launch. And it was super bittersweet. You're watching your childhood dream literally fly away without you. And then yeah. it was this moment where we're like, okay, well, well, I guess that's it. I guess this is closing this chapter on my life. And as the smoke, the plume of smoke was clearing from Atlantis, my phone rang. And it was a call from the Canadian Space Agency. Because on the off chance that maybe we could connect with an astronaut, I sent them an email and said, hey, we're just, we're, we're two people driving down from Canada. And it would be great if we could interview someone, if you're, if you have anyone down there. And they phoned us back and said, well, do you want to talk to Chris Hadfield? He's here. Oh, wow. And we said, okay, yeah, that would be amazing. And so this was the first real interview we did. I had no idea what I was doing. I had never really <laughs> met like a celebrity before or anything. Um, and I think he could tell, but he was super cool about it. Like he sat down and he said, do you have like a backdrop for the interview or anything? And we were like, no. He's like, he's like, don't worry. And he went and got like a, like a Canadian Space Agency banner and like put it in the background for us. And then he basically answered all these questions perfectly that I hadn't asked him, but wanted to have asked him, but was too nervous. And so he kind of like anticipated what we wanted to talk about. And that that started our whole journey. And the, the film's been, I mean, we've been filming, uh, we finished primary, I mean, we were never really sure when we'd be done. Uh, but I think we, we finished up with our last big interview was with Jill Tarter at the SETI program. Uh, and she was kind of a capstone on it because... Again, the, the the film had shifted theme a lot more to this idea of connection. And so we thought, well, SETI seems like a good thing to do. So we shot, we finished that in 2019. So we filmed for like almost 10 years. And a lot of it was covering me trying to shift my career path from like working in student affairs and in a university to going to science education and science outreach. And, and I've, I'm the main hope I get, you know, that we hope to translate through the film is is just that, is that like you try to in whatever way, if there's something you're passionate about, 
you know, maybe try, try to make it a part of your life and see how it still integrates into your life. And, and what's that thing that helps you to connect with other people? And it doesn't have to become your career. Not everyone can do that. You know, just not everyone can go pursue their dream, quote unquote. But if there's still some way to make a meaningful connection to that passion in your life, uh, even as a hobby, like try to do it because it, it's what keeps you alive. Now, uh, so uh, uh, chasing Atlantis, so it is uh, uh, still, is it in, uh, uh, is it in production, post-production? We're in post-production now, finally. Uh, we're wrestling and edit together. I, it is it is overwhelming and it is terrifying because, you know, we have almost a decade of footage, uh, amazing events from the shuttle launch to the, we went down to film the solar eclipse in 2017 down in, in Oregon. Uh, we actually had permission from NASA to get up and close with and personal with Atlantis itself in the new facility they have it in. It's basically a museum uh, to dedicated to the space shuttle program. We got time outside of the public to film with it um, and incredible interviews from just like a, a, a whole range of people from Jill Tarter, um, you know, Bill Nye, the science guy, a uh, bunch of actors, people from Star Trek. Like, it's just this cool oh. thing that we got a chance to do. And ultimately... Um, we owe a great debt of gratitude to many people who are willing to meet with us, who are these like small time filmmakers and share their time because they too were passionate about talking their connection to the stars, about their connection to the stars and flushing out why we have that, what, and that thing that we, that desire to look up and to, to want to step out into the cosmos. That's wow. wonderful. Uh, and you know, uh, uh, especially because, uh, you know, uh, I'm glad that you're you're working on this project. And even though you, you you're mentioning that it is, uh, you know, a, a difficult task, uh, we do the other things not because they are easy, but because they are hard. The words that sent us to the moon. Now, uh, I do have one final question, uh, and Jeff, if you have uh, another question, feel free to jump in as well. But my question is, you know, as space, you know, uh, uh, space travel for civilians is is becoming more and more uh, of a realistic attainable goal by realistic i mean if you have you know a couple hundred g's how much does it cost to go to space right now i I think it's about that yeah ticket ranges seems to be close in the hundreds of thousands of dollars yes oh man or half a non-fungible token uh but uh for for the three of us uh you know if we or when we get the opportunity, would we go into space on whether it's, you know, on a civilian type thing, uh, a civilian type excursion to space, or when Earth is being evacuated because the aliens <laughs> did finally decide to show themselves and it turns out they don't like us. Because Bruce Willis <laughs> failed. Yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, would we would we go to space? Would if we had the chance, would each of us go to space? Uh, if if I could, actually, I don't know. I no, I don't think I would. Um, <laughs> I was gonna say if it was if it was like a cruise ship and it was just like full on luxury going to space, but I don't like cruise ships either. I've never had seen the appeal of going on a cruise ship. So if I could if I could be cryogenically frozen and skip the travel part of space and just arrive in the destination and that destination was totally safe. It's not like LV two two four or it's not like I'm living in this giant bubble that the oxygen could leak and we'll all die anytime. 
if it was all like fully tested, yeah, sure, then I'd do it. All right. Yeah. <laughs> the safety and safety, it's important. Uh for for myself, um I I would. If if nothing else, because um, you know, the idea of going to space and and the ideas of, you know, what could happen, you know, are obviously you know, scary, but I think that going into space would be a fantastic opportunity uh, and something that, you know, you would be, I mean, right now, one of my high, one of my go-to icebreakers, uh, you know, when doing like a group activity is I once took part in the sandwich eating contest. I feel that <laughs> going to space would be so much more cooler, if not more filling. Uh, but yeah, uh, I, I would go to space because it would be just something that I think that uh, I would be able to look back on and be like, wow, I, I'm glad I did that. Yeah. You just want it for the Instagram selfies. I do. <laughs> That's why a lot of people are going to go, I think. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. Influencers first. Influencers and, first, yeah. And for yourself, Matthew, what about you? Um, I say yes, but with an asterisk. Um, <laughs> so... Before, like if you'd asked me 10 years ago, uh, before I started this project, I there was I remember writing down, like I, I was reflecting on the sentiment around wanting to go to space. And um, there is a, uh, there's this amazing photo that's taken with astronaut Tracy Caldwell Dyson. And she is in the International Space Station and she is looking out the uh, module uh, on the station that has this incredible window. It's like a hexagon shaped window looking out onto the earth. And I used to think that that was the one place that I could find like serenity in life. Like I couldn't think of anything more serene than being in that place, looking down on the earth. But after reflecting on this for a number of years now, I realized that the main reason why I always wanted to go to space was because I thought that was the only way I could secure enough credibility to talk about why space was so inspiring to me with other people. That unless I had done that, I wouldn't be able to do exactly what I'm doing right now with all of you. And But that's not true. And it's, it's one of the things that gave, empowered me to become a science communicator. And, and why I think science communication is so cool as like a growing field is that it's not it's not just scientists. It's people that are sharing the views of scientists, and that's important. They're not people that are challenging scientists. It's people with a diverse skill set, artists, educators, performers, teachers, you know, myself, I have a political science background, um, but sharing space and science with others. And so I would, I would love to go, but I don't feel like I have to go anymore. And I think that that's a key distinction to make. Wow. That is beautiful. Wonderful. Well, and I, I learned, uh, I watched a documentary not too long ago, uh, Spaceship Earth. And if you've seen that, you'll learn that a lot of people don't have to have any education in space in order to do a very expensive project. <laughs> I haven't seen that one yet. I gotta check it out. It's another one of those. It is a wild up. ride. I tell oh, man. You. My Netflix to watch list is, is just this ever growing thing that never gets anything watched on. <laughs> Uh, wow. Well, uh, uh, folks, gents, uh, I'm very glad that we had this, this discussion. If nothing else, that uh, uh, I think that, you know, again, that sense of wonder. And I think that's, you know, Jeff, that's that's why 
That's why I really enjoy doing Fear of Science with you. It's because every time, you know, no matter what the topic, uh, who our wonderful special guest is, uh, it just elicits a, a sense of wonder of like, wow, there's a whole new world for whole <laughs> other worlds that I know very little about. And, it, you know, it inspires me to uh, keep on learning. And that's why I'm very glad that, uh, uh, you know, whether it's at Science World that with you and at the planetarium and at the observatory, I think that, you know, if nothing else, if if people never make it to space, I, I hope that people just keep learning and and trying to reconnect with that sense of wonder. Because I think that, that sense of wonder is the thing that's really going to help us in so many, you know, parts of our lives, both solo and together. <laughs> Absolutely. Well said. Good job, Daniel. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, for more information uh, about uh, the wonderful work that, that you do uh, and about uh, the Chasing Atlantis, uh, Matthew, where can people learn more uh, about you? Yeah, they can check us out at ChasingAtlantis.com. So we've got updates on there um, and also on our Facebook page. So we'll post updates, especially now that we're in post-production. It might be us just kind of like posting little interview segments and clips that we're trying out with our different interviewees. We have a great one. We've, we've mentioned Jill Tarter a couple times. Uh, one of the ones I love the most, we've got one with her uh, that's on there right on our front page when you visit the, the website. Um, if you're, we didn't uh, touch on this too much, but um, uh, the other thing that we're, we're working on is, uh, is helping my friend Esther, who founded her own school in West Africa. Um, that all came about because originally I, I saw people in Star Trek traveling through the universe and trying to do good in places. And I was like, that's what I'm going to try to do, too. So um, Esther started her own school. She's local to Sierra Leone, and we just are supporting her work. Uh, so that's why the organization is called Esther's Echo. So if you want to check out our charity work there, uh, you can go to esthersecho.org. Um, and then the last thing, I were, this is kind of an experiment, but it's something I've always wanted to do is I'm in the process. So by the time this airs, I'm in the process of shooting the first episode of a new YouTube channel called Wonderfant. And it is a science, uh, science-based science YouTube channel that's co-hosted with an elephant puppet. What? Uh, and his name is Charles, and he is my better half, who is... Uh, he is the embodiment of all the childhood wonder I know. So uh, you can check out that show. It's Wonder Fant, like Wonder Elephant. Nice. That is amazing. Uh, wow. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Matthew, for joining us. And thank Jeff. you. This was so much fun. Oh, oh yeah. thank you. Uh, uh, and the best part is, uh, in the future, Jeff, let's get uh, Wonder Fant on. I think it would be a great <laughs> discussion. Oh, Charles right? would love to be a guest. He'd, he'd be totally into that. Yeah, I think puppets would do really great on a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, Jeff, for people who want to learn more about Fear of Science, where are we? Uh, you can find us at Science Fears on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Wonderful. Uh, everyone, thank you very much uh, for uh, listening. Keep your eyes on the stars. Keep your heart in your chest cavity. <laughs> My name is Daniel. And I'm Jeff. And we will chat with you again soon. Thank you all very much.